Thank you. Uh, when I got up at the last service to talk, I dropped the mic and made a loud noise, of course. But I, I thought it was fitting because after Shane's explanation, I think the mic can be dropped. He does such a good job. He said very concisely what what I'm not going to say very concisely in this sermon. So, uh, but bear with me. I still think it is very good stuff. We are in this sermon series. It is finished, right? And so we're considering what did Jesus accomplish in his life? What did he accomplish in his death, his burial, and his resurrection? Last Sunday we looked at his death, or life. What did he accomplish there? Um, we're going to look at his death today. Now I want to just tell you a couple things here quickly. Um, and I, it's what I shared last week. You need to pay attention to this because Jesus is the most influential person in human history. So you need to listen to this. Secondly, the claims and the promises that Jesus made are staggering claims and promises if they're true. And so he deserves a really hard, honest look. And if you're a non-Christian here, or if you're listening online and you're not a Christian, or if you Christians here have non-Christian friends, which I sure hope you do, and you're spending a lot of time with them and loving them, you need to explain to them, give Jesus a real hard look, because look, he's the most influential person in human history, and his claims and promises are staggering and have tremendous implications if they're true. So if you reject Jesus, only reject him because you've really given him a serious, long look. Got that. Secondly, there's no way in this short sermon I can explain, nor do I understand, everything that Jesus accomplished in his death. In fact, I had a whole list and this outline that I was planning on covering, and I decided just to cover one big idea. That's it. Here's the big idea. In the death of Jesus, God's justice and mercy for sin and sinners met. Now, what I want to do is I want to unpack this idea, and then I want to look at what does this big idea mean for us today? Let me read to you a couple verses out of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him, so this is God passing before Moses. And when he did, he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This passage talks about two things. One, God is this loving, slow to anger, amazing God who abounds in goodness, right? But he also, even though he, and, it, and he forgives iniquity, he forgives sin. But then it says, but by no means does he clear the guilty. How does God do this? How does he forgive sinners, but not clear the guilty? That's why we have this big idea, right? God's justice and mercy for sin and sinners is met in the death of Christ. So let's unpack this a little bit. 
here. Uh, you need to know, and you probably already know this, that there is probably no aspect of Christianity that modern Americans find more offensive than the fact that God is a God of wrath and judgment. Think of your non-Christian friends. Do you think they would find this offensive? Probably. Maybe you've struggled with this teaching, this biblical truth. Well, uh, I think the people in our country, and we as Americans, are more culturally conditioned than what we realize. Uh, we latch onto this idea that God is a God of love, but we really struggle with this. And, and, and this is why we struggle with God being a God of wrath and judgment. One of the most fundamental beliefs in our country is that there is no moral order, there's no moral standard outside of a person. And so, as a result, every person, it's up to them to determine what is right and wrong for them. Right? Wouldn't you say this is a pretty, especially with you younger, the younger generation, this is the worldview that many Americans have. Now, if you hold this worldview that each person has to determine what is right and wrong for them, and nobody else can tell you what is right and wrong, nobody has the right to tell you how to live your life, what kind of God can you believe in? What kind of God are you willing to believe in? Uh, only a God that accepts you no matter how you live. Only a God, you can't worship a God that would challenge how you're living or tell you that what you've determined what is right and wrong for you is actually wrong. You can't bear that. And so you're not willing to worship a God like that. Now, don't you see that this is really a product of our culture, this, this worldview? If you were in a traditional culture or a war-torn culture, guess what you would find extremely offensive? That God just accepts people and loves people no matter how they live. You remember I shared last Sunday the story of the woman who was in Africa and her whole family, except for like two of her kids, they were brutally murdered in the genocide in Africa. Can you imagine telling that lady that, hey, God, you know, everybody gets to determine who's right, what's right and wrong for them. Uh, the, the, those people who murdered your family, they determined it was right for them to murder your family. And so, hey, God accepts them and loves them no matter what they determine is right and wrong for them. Can you imagine how offensive that would be if God wasn't a God of justice and judgment? Can you imagine telling um, a survivor of the Holocaust or a black person living in the deep south during, during the Jim Crow era that God doesn't care about justice? Ooh, that's offensive. So, this idea that we can, God can't be a God of wrath and judgment is really a product of our American modern culture. Now, I will tell you this as well. There's a major problem with this American way of thinking. Let me tell you what that is. That leads us to the second thing that I want to mention to you. Giving up on a God of wrath and judgment is to give up on a God of love. Let me explain. God, his wrath and his love, they are mutually, um, they work together. They are complementary of one another. 
They are not mutually exclusive. Do you know what the opposite of love is? It is not wrath. It is indifference. That's the opposite of love. Let me explain. There's nobody on planet Earth that I love more than my wife Mary and my two boys. If people are hurting them, guess what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be ticked off. I'm going to be angry. If they do things to hurt themselves, guess what? I'm going to be angry. If they do things to hurt other people, I'm going to be angry. Why? Because I love them. If Mary left me for another person, I would be full of anger and jealousy. Why? Because I love her. The opposite of love is not wrath, it's indifference. If these things were happening and I was just like, I don't really care, what does that reveal? I don't love, right? Opposite of wrath, or opposite of love is not wrath, but indifference. Um, I think many people think of God as this like really angry God who is really moody and just like flies off the handle for no good reason and like gets upset if somebody walks on his grass and enjoys like torturing people. Yeah, get upset about that, God, because that's not the God that is the one true God that the Bible proclaims. You see, Becky Pippert, she, I feel like she has to be joyful with that. It's like, Pippert. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with this whole being. Your, your, your non-Christian friends and you non-Christians listening, you need to see this. Now, sin. Sin is the cancer that God's wrath turns against. Next point I want you to see. What is sin? Well, the Bible talks about sin in, in a variety of ways. Let me mention three to you. The first is sin is disobeying the law of God. I think this is what many people think that sin is, and it is. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, breaking the law, right? For example, when we sin when we gossip about people we should have loved, right? When we're driven by selfishness, you know, fly off the handle and rage at our spouse, a co-worker, one of our kids. We sin when we covet another person's beauty or their possessions or their talents. We sin when we're envious. Envious is like a step further than covetousness, right? When you envy, you not only want what another person has, you hate them for having it. It's envy. We sin in all these ways. We fail to keep our promises. The list goes on, right? Now, that's sin disobeying the law of God. Sin is also, though, another way the Bible talks about it is idolatry. If you were to look at Romans 1, 18 through 25, and we won't read the verses, but it will tell you that sin is idolatry. It's taking a created thing and turning it into an ultimate thing, a God thing, and worshiping it. Looking for, to it for meaning and satisfaction and purpose and a sense of significance. That's what it is. Do you know that any time that you sin, underneath that sin is the sin of idolatry? It is always the sin underneath the sin. 
If you look at, for example, a person that cheats on their taxes, the surface sin is they, they cheated on their taxes. What's the sin underneath the sin? They must be looking to something for satisfaction, significance, or security, or they wouldn't have cheated on their taxes. Maybe they're looking to money and the acquisition of it to make them feel okay, right? You think about the parent that has absolutely no rules for their kid, right? On the surface, they're really neglecting their kid by not having rules. What's underneath that? Well, they're worshiping their kid. They don't want their kid to be angry with them because their whole sense of worth is locked up in their kid liking them. Or how about the parent that has way too strict of rules for their kid? Well, what's the sin underneath that sin? Well, probably the same, that they're looking to their kids for their sense of worth to justify their existence. And so they're really harsh on their kids because their kids have to perform in a certain way for them to feel as if they are worth anything. You can always trace any surface sin back to its root, and it's always the root of idolatry. All right, so sin is also then spiritual adultery. Bible talks about it this way, James 4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God is the most compassionate, loving, wonderful, attractive, pure being in the universe. He loves us with all of his heart and he created us to love him with all of our hearts, right? He's the source of everything good in our life. And when we sin, what do we do? We ditch the most lovely to go after other lovers. That's what we do. And that is spiritual adultery. We're supposed to have this exclusive love relationship with God. We forsake Him and we go after other lovers that promise us everything but don't deliver. That can't give us what God the most lovely can give us. Now we must ask, what does God's wrath lead to? If love leads to God's wrath against sin and sinners because he loves sin, not sin, he loves sinners and he knows what, what sin is doing to them. And so love leads to wrath. What does wrath lead to? It leads to God's mercy and justice. That's what it leads to. God is both merciful and just. He loves to forgive disobedient idolaters and adulterers. And yet, even though he gets no pleasure out of the destruction of the wicked, he can't let the guilty go unpunished, as we read in Exodus 34. What is God to do? What, is he, what can he do? Well, how can he uphold mercy and justice? One word, and that's Jesus. Check this out. In his death, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and the just punishment for our sin. Romans 3, 23 through 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time 
his righteousness that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Propitiation is not a word that we use, right? But what it means is that Jesus, when he shed his blood on the cross, he absorbed God's wrath in your place. That's what it means. And so what God was doing was allowing God's justice to fall on himself. Remarkable. There are other religions that claim that God is a just God and will repay people according to their deeds. But there is no religion that says that God is a just God and then allows justice, his justice, to fall on himself. No other religion claims this. Now, since God's justice has been met through Jesus' death, what remains for those who are in Christ? His mercy. His mercy. Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Hear me on this. If you have zoned out, tune back in with me. Check this out. If God was only just, Jesus would have not had to die. Why? Because God would have just allowed his justice to fall on people. Got it? If God was only merciful, Jesus would not have had to die. Why? Because he just would have turned a blind eye to sin. Just, hey, I accept you and sweep sin under the rug and come, come be with me. But because God is both just and merciful, Jesus had to die. What does this mean for us living in 2021? Let me give you three things. Because through the death of Christ, God's just... Hopefully, as we... Uh, <laughs> went through this and we looked at how sin is described in the Bible in those three different ways, uh, we either came to the realization that we are sinful or we're reminded of that fact. And uh, we see that we've all disobeyed God's laws. We've all, you know, engaged in idolatry and we've all been spiritual adulterers and adulteresses, right? Now, I hope you also realize just how tremendously God loves you. And that's why he's so angry about the cancer of sin, because it's destroying the people he loves and it's destroying the world he loves, right? I hope you know that. I hope you also see and have seen that God is committed to mercy and justice, and that's why Jesus came. Now. He paid for God's justice in your place so that you could receive his mercy. How do you get in on that? How do you get in on God's justice and mercy? In particular, mainly his mercy. It's by repentance and faith. In order to escape God's justice and receive God's mercy, you must repent and place your faith in Jesus. Mark 1, 14 through 15, with Jesus, he came onto the scene. He came onto the scene preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does repentance mean? It means to own up to the fact that you have disobeyed God's law, that you're an idolater and you have engaged in spiritual adultery. It's to own up to that and to turn from it. What's faith? Faith 
means trusting in and relying upon Jesus' death as the payment for your sin. And, the, and trusting that it's Jesus' sacrifice that makes forgiveness of you possible. Have you repented and placed your faith in Jesus? Those who are listening online, have you repented and placed your faith in Jesus? Have you received the gift of God's justice being satisfied for you so that only his mercy remains? This, of course, also means if we reject God's mercy and Jesus' death, we will experience God's justice. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son, that's Jesus, has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Don't you see? Either Jesus absorbs God's justice in your place, or you absorb it yourself. The sad reality is, there's nothing more sad than this, that there will be many, many people that persist in rejecting God's mercy in Christ. For their whole life, they'll, they'll routinely uh, persist in rejecting His mercy. And as their life goes on, what happens to their heart is it becomes harder and more bitter, decreasing the chances that they'll ever receive Jesus' mercy. You see, when we are separated from God and we continue on that path, our soul shrivels more and more. And we become more entrenched into you know, to our addiction to sin, and we become more self-absorbed, more cynical, more bitter, more jealous, more envious, more entitled, more it's everybody else's fault and not mine. And we become more justifying and blind to the sin in us. And for those that repeatedly refuse God's mercy and persist in rebelling against Him, what can God do? If he's a God of justice, what can he do if they continue to reject his mercy? They're going to experience his justice. What is God's justice? What is the fair sentence that a person will receive if they reject God's mercy? I think uh, we can think about Jesus on the cross. When he absorbed God's justice, what was the worst part? Well, his cry reveals what the worst part was for Jesus. What did Jesus cry on the cross? Was it, oh, these nails in my hands, these nails in my feet? No. It was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the worst punishment, the worst part of the punishment that Jesus bore was separation from God. Eternal separation from God will be the worst part of the punishment that all who persist in evil and resist the mercy of God are bound to experience. Now, I've heard people say, well, that's to go light on hell, to describe it as eternal separation from God. I would love to lovingly challenge this thought. I think if somebody thinks that eternal separation from God is to go light on hell, it's because you don't understand how amazing God is. Because if you understood that, you would understand how horrifying it is to be completely cut off from Him. 
God is the source of everything good. He is the source of love. He is the source of joy. He is the source of peace. He's the source of truth and beauty and righteousness and justice and human flourishing, harmony, unity, meaning, purpose. Don't you see? To be completely separated from God is to have a meaningless, a hate-filled, a manically depressed, chaotic, conflict-filled, deception-filled, hideous existence in which you are perpetually disintegrating and becoming more and more isolated, more and more evil, more and more less human, in a world totally void of anything good and unrestrained evil. No wonder the Bible talks about hell as fire, as gnashing of teeth, uh, as outer darkness. It's, those are all figures of speech to, to try and articulate how horrible it would be to be eternally separated from God. While in one sense it is true that God sends people to hell, in a really real sense, it is true that God, in sending people to hell, is just honoring the choice that they have made all their life, which is to be separated from him. That is why G.K. Chesterton said this, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. That's why D.A. Carson put it this way, Hell is not a place where people are consigned because they were pretty good blokes, but they just didn't believe the right stuff. They're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their maker and want to be at the center of the universe. Hell is not filled with people who have already repented. Only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the center of the universe and who persist in their God-defying rebellion. What else does Jesus in his death satisfying God's justice so that we could receive mercy? What else does that mean for us today? We can escape God's justice, we can receive his mercy, but secondly, we can be free from the power of sin. That's what Shane's video was all about. Because Jesus was crucified, we can be free from the power of sin. Because here's what happened when Jesus was crucified. Something amazing happened. For all of those who are in Christ through repentance and faith, when Jesus was crucified, guess what? You were actually crucified with him. You were actually crucified with him, which means that you're like, I'm living, so how did I die? You know what died was your old nature that was a slave to sin. Your old nature in Adam was murdered. It was killed. It came to a decisive end when Jesus was crucified. When Jesus died, he killed our old life in Adam so that his resurrection could also be ours. Romans 6, 5 states that because our old man has been crucified, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are freed from sin. Death no longer has dominion over us. We are dead to sin. Why did that have to happen? Why did our old nature have to be crucified? Well, here's why. Death always precedes resurrection. In order for you to be raised with a new nature, raised to new life, the old life had to die. 
And so Romans 6.11 tells you to reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Consider yourself dead to sin. Uh, one commentator, I love how he puts it, he said this, This is no game of let's pretend. Believers should consider themselves to be what God, and in fact, has made them. Do you believe that you're actually dead to sin? Your, your old nature has actually died, it's been crucified. Do you really believe that? Secondly, because we are dead to sin, we should not, as Romans 6.12 6, tells us, we should not let sin reign in our body. We should use our body for righteousness. I believe there are too many Christians who are living without the realization that their old self has truly been killed. And this is dangerous. Because what, that ha what, what happens then is you believe that you're really not powerful enough to say no to sin. And so you probably have some sins that are very habitual for you and you're entrenched in them. It's really easy to believe that you're a slave to those habits and that you, through the power of Christ, can't say no to them. Don't believe that lie. That, 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 is, that old dominion of sin has been crucified. It's killed. You can say no to it. To illustrate this, I think a lot of Christians live as some slaves lived after the emancipation. Um, they uh, heard that they were free, but they didn't believe it. And so what did they do? They went back to their old slave masters and continued to live as slaves, even though they were free. Don't go back to your old slave masters. Don't, and another thing, don't go back to your old life and, and feel all the shame and guilt and ruminate on that. Use all your mental energy, your emotional energy to live out this new life that you have been given. That is finished. Third thing that this, why Jesus and his death, he he uh, took on God's justice and so we could have mercy. Third thing I want to say why it matters for us today and I'll be done. One day we can be free from the presence of sin. Uh, God, through Jesus, has revealed how extremely serious he is about justice. Um, and it can encourage us to know that if he's that serious about justice, his promises to make the world right are going to happen. Um, I mean, he's so serious about justice that he even died to uphold justice. And so we can rest assured that he, he's going to come back. And he's going to make the world right. Now, the question is, well, let me just say this. This was an aha for me, by the way. If there was no judgment, and if there was no hell, there could be no heaven. Think about this. When I when this just light bulb flashed in my head, I was like, oh, why haven't I really thought about this? If, if God did not quarantine in hell forever those people that persist in rebelling against him and destroying what he loves, there could be no heaven. There could be no new earth. Because if he let those people in, it would only be a sh really short matter of time until the new earth was destroyed and full of sin again. 
He has to quarantine those who persist in rejecting him, or there couldn't be a heaven. There couldn't be new heavens, new earth. Understand? Now, second thing is, though, well, how will I not mess it up? If I'm in Christ, how will I? And I still, even though I've been given a new nature, there's still sin that resides in my body, and so I still can sin. How am I not going to mess it up? Well, that's why um, verses like 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 and Romans 18 through 21 are so important because they tell us that God's mercy doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but one day it will save us to the extent that we'll be completely free from the presence of sin. You see, God is taking us, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 says, from one state of glory to another. He is conforming us to the image of His Son. The good work He has started in us, God will complete and will eventually get to that place where there is no longer any sin at all in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our words, in our deeds. And we will be fit to rule over God's new world. And that's why Romans 8, if you were to read it, verses 18 through 21, says that creation right now is waiting basically on tiptoe for the sons of God to be revealed in full glory. Because when they are, creation itself will be set free to be all that God intended it to be. Because why? Because now humans will be able to rule over it with God's justice as they were always meant to. Ah, oh, stuff is so good. Let me just tell you this. We'll wrap it up. Jesus' death, that it um, accomplished, it allowed God's justice and mercy met, means everything for today. It means you can escape God's justice and receive his mercy. It means you're good. You, can, you are free from the power of sin if you accept Jesus. It also means that one day you'll be free from the very presence of sin. You will reign with Jesus on the new heavens and new earth in a resurrected body. Oh. Do you know this Jesus? Is he yours? This Jesus who gave up his glory so that you could be glorified. And in giving up his glory on the cross actually just showed all his glory all the more. Remarkable. Do you know this Jesus that was forsaken for you so that you could be accepted and brought in? Do you know this Jesus that has experienced God's justice so that you could receive God's mercy? Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for accomplishing, allowing God's justice and mercy to meet in your death. It is so wonderful. We could spend... It, we really are to spend a lifetime minding, mining the treasure out of that reality. Lord, I pray that you would make it real to our hearts so that we live differently. And I pray, Lord, that as we engage with our non-Christian friends, and if there's any non-Christians that are here, that they would see how much you love them. And that's why you're angry over their sin and how that wrath leads to then you extending uh, Jesus as the one, the gift that can bring uh, satisfy your justice and bring his mercy. I pray that all who don't know him would repent and turn to him in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.